the best I can. But um, last week when we were uh, in the, the first part of First Peter 1, I opened by asking you to consider how are you handling the trials and difficulties of life, right? How, how, how's it going for you? How are you doing? When you experience hard things and we acknowledge that we all do and certainly all right now can say that the last year or two, we've all experienced trials and challenges and difficulties, stressors, anxiety-producing events, and all of that, how are we doing? How are we handling it? What has the last year, I asked, revealed about your faith? What has it revealed about your faith? Is it hopeful and growing? Or are you finding that you've been experiencing more of a crisis of faith? Especially as life gets hard, that's when crises of faith tend to happen, right? Life gets hard and we start to ask God, where are you? God, what's going on? God, can I trust in your goodness? Are you for me? Right? How are you doing? How's the last year revealed the level of your faith? Last week's passage, which was verses 3 through 13, Peter gives us the proper perspective to have as believers who are living in this, this here and now, we called it the already not yet tension of our salvation, this current life in Christ. And that perspective was we are to be people who live with a present hope because of our future salvation. And we talked about the fact that our salvation is, is uh, the, the, the work of our, salva our salvation is complete in Christ because of the cross and the resurrection, our faith in Him, and yet we have this salvation, the fullness of it, the completion of it that still awaits us. We live in the, in the here and now, the already not yet. So we have present hope and future salvation. Peter gives us such good uh, gospel truth to cling to in that opening part of the letter. He says you're recipients of God's mercy. You, because of the death and resurrection of Christ, you have an unshakable claim to His promises, to the full assurance of this salvation that is kept in heaven, that is ready to be revealed to you on the last day. And because you have all of that, you can be joyful. You can have a confident outlook in life, even though our lives are presently hard. And he talks about the present difficulties of life. He says you're going to be experiencing trials. You're going to be experiencing persecutions. And in fact, we know that the impetus of this letter was because not only were they beginning to feel those things as new believers in a pagan world, but that those things were about to get worse. And so he reminds them, God is at work in the trials and the tribulations of our lives. They're not just things that are happening to you. It's not just that life is hard, but God is at work in that. He lovingly is using those hardships to refine our faith, to, to test it, not again like, a, like, a, like taking an exam, a pass-fail exam, but to purify it, to test it like we would purify precious metals. He uses it to prepare us for the final salvation that awaits us. And so we need to live with this biblical perspective, right? Have this perspective so that we will endure the hard days that we face and again, even count them as joy as we suffer like Jesus has suffered for us. That's where we have been so far in the letter. Today, as we move into verses 13 to 22 of chapter 1, 
Peter's going to explain how we put that perspective, present hope, future salvation, how do you put it into practice? In other words, he's going to say, essentially, how do you actually live this hopeful life? How do you actually live this hope-filled life? Verse 13, let's read it together. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Just as he did in last week's passage, Peter bookends this exhortation with gospel promises that motivate our faith and our hope. Look again at verse 13. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's motivating our hope with the gospel promise of the grace that will be revealed. And again, in verse 20 and 21, he was foreknown, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, who gave him glory. That's gospel truth, right? So again, that your faith and your hope are in God. By the way, this foreknowledge of Jesus before the foundation of the world, if you're wondering, what does that mean? Isn't Jesus eternal? Isn't he equal? Isn't he one with the Father and the Spirit? Uh, How is he foreknown? It sounds like he didn't exist. That's not what he is writing here. What he means here is that the the man, Jesus Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In other words, the gospel plan of God that he would send his son to the earth as a human being to be the savior and redeemer of a sinful world, that plan was foreknown before the creation of the world. The gospel is God's eternal plan. So he's saying, we have this incredible hope, right? In which to anchor our faith and that hope in God. Now, this bookending of of sort of gospel promises that motivate the way we live, this is something that God always does in his word. If you go through the Bible and and you notice that when God asks his people, he commands his people to some kind of obedience towards him, he always fronts it 
with a, a, an explanation of his grace. I have saved you. I have redeemed you. Therefore, be like this. Therefore, live like this. As one commentator says, the imperatives of Christian living always begin with therefore. He's always anchoring them in his grace. And so Peter here does not begin to exhort Christians command them to do something, instruct us here without first celebrating the wonders of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. In other words, you can't get the application until you get the gospel. The gospel always must be the basis for application because of our salvation. Because the gospel is true, we can live in a certain way. That's the point of the bookends here. Now, go back to verse 13. In this verse, not only with this gospel hope, he also gives us the main command of this section. In other words, he's telling us here how you actually live the Christian life in a hopeful way. And here's the main command. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you have this hope. The gospel is true. Set that hope, your hope then, fully on that grace. And he adds two additional commands here to support the main command. How do we set our hope fully? He says, "You one, prepare your minds for action. And two, be sober-minded. This has to do with how we think. Again, this is the perspective that he's giving us. How do you put that perspective into practice? He says you you set your mind for action. You prepare yourself. You are sober-minded. Notice there's a proactive nature to these commands. In other words, living in hope is not something you do passively. It's not something we do passively. Hope requires an active participation on our part. It means you got to do something. You've got to do something. And this is really important. I want you to remember the context. Peter is, he's preparing the church for difficulties. He's preparing them for hard stuff, for trials. He wants them to have a hopeful outlook in those trials. But he's careful not to let us think that that means you can just curl up in a ball and wait for them to pass. Right? Like my hope is that this this is going to go away and in the meantime, I'll just go fetal on my couch and and I'll wait it out. That's not what he wants us to do. He's careful not to let us think that way. He's saying, no, you've got lives to live. You've got lives to live. I alluded to this last week, but I want to restate it and, and make it more clear. Last week I said, I said the fact that we're exiles uh, remember, we talked about that uh, from verse one and, and said, you know, this is not our ultimate home, right? We're, we're, we're citizens ultimately of heaven. We're just, we're just sort of renters here. I said that that fact does not mean that we're not to be invested in this life. It, what it, what it, I, I said it means rather that our, our investment objectives are just different now. And what I meant by that was that our, our temporary status as citizens in this world shouldn't cause us to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. We have lives to live. We are to be invested in this life, even as we see it as temporal. So, here's what Peter's wanting us to know. He said, the fact that you have this eternal heavenly citizenship 
should inspire you. It should compel you to live in the here and now with a much more confident and long-term outlook. In other words, when you look at this temporal life, see it as what it is. It's an extension of our eternal spiritual life. It's not some unnecessary afterthought. Or maybe in this case, an unnecessary forethought. he's, He's wanting us to see that what we do now serves as a vital preparation for how we will enjoy eternity. So what does that hopeful living entail? Here it is. Active obedience to God. Look at verse 14. Remember, he's just told us to be sober-minded, to prepare our minds for action, and to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, as obedient children, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Peter frames this active obedience in both positive and negative terms. In other words, he says, look, to be obedient children, to be active in your obedience, there's sort of a a what to do and a what what not to do, right? He actually starts with the what not to do and then moves into the what to do instead. I'm going to read 14 and 15 in their entirety. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. What not to do, be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What to do, be holy in all of your conduct. Let's look at the negative example. What does it mean to be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance? And again, think of this specifically in the midst of trials, in the midst of hardships. From a Christian standpoint, I think it means being passive, right? I just said we're not supposed to be passive in our hope-filled lives. I think going back to the former ignorance is being passive. In other words, it's retreating away from the, the, the life that we've been called to live in Christ back into the former passion, the things that we would do in our former days before Christ when we experienced hardships. You know, there's exile and dispersion language here in chapter 1 that he uses to describe the church. Remember back in verse 1, we see him open up that way. I think there's an, there's an intentional allusion here to the Old Testament Israelites. And so Peter is saying here, like Israel, you, church, you're the people of God. You're the people of God. You are the elect people of God. And that Old Testament imagery is helpful in demonstrating for us where he's getting at here, this difference between faithful obedience and unfaithful disobedience, I think we can look at Israel and say Israel serves as an example for the church. That's why I had Numbers 14 read at the beginning of the service. Want us to kind of go back to the desert with Moses and the people and remember what it was like for them when they started to experience hard stuff. What did they do? God had just redeemed them. He just delivered them out of Egypt. Now they're in the desert. This journey between the the, the here and now, where they're at in the desert, and the promised land of inheritance that that was awaiting for them, it was hard. 40 years in the desert, right? 
hard, difficult days. And when faced with the trials of hardship in the desert, what did they do? They started to grumble. They started to complain. And their grumbling led them to want to turn back. That's what we read there in Numbers 14. They basically started saying there, didn't we have it easier in Egypt? And God was, God, he said he was going to save us and redeem us. He was going to liberate us. And now life is actually hard. Wasn't it better back in Egypt? Wouldn't it be better for us to go back? And we read that now and, you know, we think those silly Israelites, right? Those foolish people. How dumb are they? Don't they see what God is really like? Don't they see what, 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 what they were? Don't they remember? They were slaves when they were back in Egypt. They were crying out for deliverance when they were back in Egypt. And God heard them. And God saved them. How could they now think that this life was better than what they're experiencing now in the desert? The desert's hard. Was it better back then? How foolish of them. Don't they know what's awaiting them just around the corner? Don't they know that there's a promised land of inheritance awaiting them? That's how we can read that and think about those folks, right? And we say, ah, yes, but guess what? We're just like them. We're so often tempted to do the exact same thing. And that's what Peter's getting at here. In the midst of hardships, we're tempted to go back and be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. How? Because when the trials and tribulations of life set in and things get hard, we so often want to passively retreat back into our Egypts, back into our former passions. We look for comfort and we look for consolation in the very things that God redeemed us out of. The very things we were once enslaved to. The very things that were actually killing us. Down in verse 18, Peter describes these as the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. In other words, the ways of our former pagan past. What we would do apart from Christ. Where we would seek comfort in the midst of difficulties. Please think about that. Think about that for yourself. Ask yourself, when I run up against hard things in life, what do I most often turn to and run to in order to find comfort? How about just mind-numbing entertainment? Right? This is the curling up on a ball in your couch and just like wanting the whole thing to pass you by, right? It's not very hopeful. It's just mind-numbing. Just I'm going to binge Netflix for like four days. Maybe things will get better, right? Or maybe some of us, we run to sort of self-medicate. Like, I, I, I want the escape. I want the, the release, the comfort that, that I can find if I just numb my brain a little bit, right? He says here, be sober-minded. That literally means... Don't be intoxicated in your thinking. I think he's thinking about things like alcohol or, you know, in modern, in modern uh, experience, you know, weed or pills or right? the things that we would, just, we would just intoxicate ourselves with and numb ourselves with to just forget about our troubles. Or how many of us would run into sexual sin 
or pornography. Just I'm again, I'm numbing myself. I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to take my feelings that are that are bad and hard and and sort of temporarily make them feel good with a rush of a sexual uh, fantasy or a sexual uh, encounter. Here's another one I I, I want to bring up because I see this happen a lot, and I think we need to be challenged on it. When things are hard. How many of us go after the attention-seeking, ego-stroking help of social media posts? Right? Like, I'm just going to put it out there and tell everybody how hard it is, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with sharing our burdens with one another. But I wonder how often we share our burdens with one another in such a way that what we're really after in our heart of hearts is, I just hope people will give me a lot of likes. I hope people will affirm me and tell me how strong I am and how good I am and how great I am and how pretty I am or whatever it is that they do, right? Is it, a, is it, a, is it sharing burdens or is it just attention-seeking and ego-stroking? See, Peter's like, we, we're, we're, we want to run back. These are, the, these are the ways that the world copes with their hardships. And he's saying, you're not the world. You're, you're the people of Christ. You have hope in Christ. Don't go back to the former passions when you were ignorant, before you knew Jesus. Don't run away from Christ. Like Israel, we will often say, I want to go back to the former life. I want to retreat. And Peter looks as, as with, with these gentle pastoral eyes and he says, no, 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 no. You have a life to live. God has brought you out of Egypt. God has set you on a path towards the celestial city. You have to walk forward. And here's how you do it. Again, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your contact, all of your conduct. Not passive retreat, active obedience. Active holiness in all of your conduct. Obedience means holiness. And holiness is the outflow of hope. What does holiness look like? Well, I think we could say it's the opposite of the former passions of ignorance, which are very self-focused, right? They're very inwardly driven, I want to I want to just curl up in a ball. I want to I want to numb myself. I want to soothe myself. I want to seek attention for myself. Inwardly driven thoughts. This is the opposite of that. It's not self-focused at all. It requires an active love for God and love for other people that gets my eyes off of myself and conforms me into the image and the example of Jesus who was all about the love of God and the love of other people. Remember what Martin Luther said about 1 Peter. I've said it every Sunday so far here. He said it contains everything a Christian needs to know in order to live this life. So, we can look at the rest of 1 Peter for examples of what holiness looks like. Loving God actively and serving other people actively the rest of the letter plainly shows us this pattern of holy living. Look at chapter 2. I'm going to fly through some verses here. Chapter 2, verse 1. Holiness. 
Active obedience means putting away all malice, all deceit, all envy, and all slander. Verse 2, it means that we long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. In other words, we nourish ourselves with scripture. Down in verse 8, he says of those who don't, they stumble because they disobey the word. Chapter 2, verse 11, he he tells us to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable. Do good deeds. Verse 13 to 25, he talks there about being subject to authority, giving honor to them. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, he talks about honoring our spouses, loving them. Verse 8 of chapter 3, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender hearts, humility. Verse 9, bless others rather than repay evil for evil. Verse 10, keep your tongues from speaking evil or lies. Seek peace, pursue peace. And we get to chapter 4, and it's all about suffering well in the example of Jesus. And there he says, in our suffering in the example of Jesus, we cease from sin. Chapter 4, verse 8, keep loving one another. Forgive one another. Show hospitality to one another. Use your spiritual gifts, verse 10, to serve one another. In chapter 5, he rounds out with elders, eagerly be examples to the flock. Church members, be subject to your elders. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Cast your anxieties and your cares on him because he cares for you. Resist the devil. Suffer well. Hope in glory. Do you see how 1 Peter is just full of all of these these commands of action that are negatively and positively stated. Don't be conformed to the old ways. Press on in holiness, which looks like a love for God and a love for other people. It is not self-focused. It's not inward. It is outward holiness. That's what holy living looks like. Love God, love others, deny yourself. Pattern your lives and your conduct by what you see in Scripture as obedient children and hope in Christ. There's a clear message here for us. It is, don't look back. Don't look back. Move forward. Don't retreat or be passive. Actively walk in obedience. Be holy as God is holy. This is a key to living the hope-filled life. So we have to ask ourselves this morning, especially as we're dealing with hardships and trials in our lives, and we're asking, am I growing? Am I confident? Am I joyful? Or am I having a crisis of faith? This is what a hope-filled life looks like. Does it describe yours? Does it describe our lives? So Peter's telling you, how do you live the hope-filled life? You actively live in obedience. Live life. Love God. Serve others. That's how you do it. But he doesn't end there. He also wants us to understand why we must do this. It's not just an option for us. Like Here's the path forward. You can curl up in a ball or you can live active, holy lives. Choose. He gives us, no, no, this is why you must do that. He gives us four reasons to actively pursue holiness. Verses 15 through 19. Let me lay them out first and then we'll walk through them. Firstly, 
because God is holy. Be holy because God is holy. And he cites Leviticus 11. He's letting the word direct us here, right? You shall be holy, God says, because I am holy. Secondly, because God is our Father, verse 17. But also in verse 17, we see that God is our judge. And finally, in verses 18 and 19, because God is our Redeemer. Here's why you must live holy. He's holy, He's our Father, He's our Judge, and He's our Redeemer. What I want to do is look at the first three together. Because they actually go together. God is holy, God is Father, God is Judge. Verse 16. He says, again, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is right after he says, he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Interesting language here. Peter wants us to have a right view of God. He talks about conducting ourselves with fear. Fear of the Lord is something the Bible talks about from beginning to end as something that is, is, is essential to having a right relationship with God. It's central to a right relationship with God, the fear of the Lord. And it's central to having a life that represents that right relationship to God. So what does it mean to fear God? I think we discover the answer to that question. What does it mean to fear God when we understand the complementary relationship between God the Father and God the Judge? And we realize He's both. He's both. That's what good fathers are like. They're fathers and they're judge who judge impartially. Think about this with me. And I, and, and I know this might be a challenge because not many of us have had good fathers. But good fathers love their children and they also correct their children. They correct their children because they love their children. They encourage their children. They also place expectations on their children. They're gentle towards their children. But they're also firm. Children who have good fathers know that they're secure in His love. And at the same time, they want to please Him. They, they want not to disappoint Him. They have a reverent fear of Him even as they know they ultimately have nothing to fear because of Him. Like I said, many of us have a hard time understanding this because our earthly fathers, if we even had a relationship with our father, our earthly fathers didn't model the fatherly love and the correction of God very well. If yours did, praise God. But a lot don't. But here's the thing. When we approach God as father in Scripture, we've got to see him for what he is really like. He is the perfect father. And everything I just described about what a good father does comes directly from how he relates to his children. We need to learn what a perfect father looks like. He loves us, so he corrects us. 
right? He encourages us, but he has expectations for us. We need to grasp what the beaver in Narnia said about Aslan. Remember, the, the Aslan is the, the, the picture of God in C.S. Lewis's great novels. What does the beaver say about, about Aslan? He says, safe? Lucy's like, is he safe? Safe, he says? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That, that line in that movie points us to that movie, book, it's a movie too, but if I say movie, then it makes me sound like I didn't read the book. I read the book, right? <laughs> that line points us to a healthy fear of God. Safe, not safe, but he's good, right? Healthy fear of God. True fear of the Lord realizes you can't run from God. You can't run from God. The only option is to run to him. But when you do, you find the embracing arms of a loving father. So Peter says, be holy, because God your father is also the judge who judges impartially. He has expectations. Be holy because your father is holy and he expects you to be like him, like father, like son. Like father, like daughter. We must be holy because God is holy. He's our father. He's our judge. And finally, he says we're to be holy because God in Christ has redeemed us. He ransomed us from the futility of sin. Verse 18. Again, he's, he's just told us to be holy and to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile, with this knowledge, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You were ransomed from those ways, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We're to be holy because we've been redeemed. We often talk about our redemption in terms of its benefits for us, right? My redemption means that I'm, you know, I've been saved from the bondage of sin. I've been forgiven. I've been set free. I've, I've gained eternal life. That's what redemption means for me. We talk about it like that a lot. What has it done for me? I don't think we talk enough about what it demands of us. And we need to recognize that in Scripture, when we look at the New Testament accounts, where, they, where, the, where the writers are pointing us to redemption itself, to this concept of ransom, there's always, it's always given in tandem with God's expectations from us. This is what he's done for you. There's expectations from you. Because we're ransomed, we are under an obligation to live a certain way. In Matthew 20, Jesus famously says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many, right? This is why I came. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. But remember the context? Right before he says that, the reason why he says that is because the disciples were arguing with each other. They were trying to one-up each other. They were seeking their own self-glory. And Jesus correcting them says, it shall not be so among you. 
but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He pairs this idea of the ransom with an expectation of service. Paul says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, ransom. Then he says, so glorify God in your body, service. Titus, he says, Jesus gave gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, ransom, who are zealous for good works, service. The ransom that Jesus paid for us does not just save us from something, it saves us to something. Because in his ransom, he paid everything that we owe in order to redeem us from sin's bondage. We're indebted to him. We're indebted to him to live holy lives of service and good works that appropriately demonstrate our gratitude to him for that redemption. And those lives are marked by loving God and loving others more than we love ourselves. You say, well, doesn't that kind of border on works-based salvation, right? Like, he's ransomed us, he's redeemed us. That's grace, right? So now we're obligated to do something? Are we earning that grace? That, that sounds a little bit like a works-based salvation. No, it's not that. Again, the imperatives of the Christian life always begin with, therefore, God saved you first. God ransomed you by his grace. That's a posture if we say, okay, now I'm obligated It's a posture that fully recognizes God's grace, but also realizes that this grace recreates me into a sanctified servant who is accountable to God for obedience. Ephesians 2, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Don't get that wrong. God's grace is all grace. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it, right? We can't boast in it. It is God's grace. But then Paul immediately says, for we are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This past week, we observed Veterans Day. And uh, I don't know if any of you caught the Saving Private Ryan movie marathon that was on TV. It's on TV. It seems like every Veterans Day. I caught it. I watched it a little bit again. I've seen that movie 50 times, I'm sure. Have you seen it? There's a scene at the end of the movie where Private Ryan is now a a, a 70-year-old man. He's come back to uh, Normandy, the, the grave sites that are there. And he's standing in front of the gravesite of Captain Miller. That was Tom Hanks' character, who was the man who gave his life to rescue Private Ryan. And he's standing at this grave, and he knows this is the man who died to save my life. And he begins to cry. And he cries uncontrollably. And he he looks over at his daughter, who's standing next to him, and he says, please tell me I've lived a good life. Remember that scene? It's a pretty powerful scene. 
And he asks that of her because he knows that the past 50 years of his life and all of the experiences he's had, all of his children who are running around, his grandchildren who are running around him in that very moment, he knows none of that would have existed without the sacrifice of Captain Miller who lay in the ground beneath him. And I think that's exactly what Peter means when he says, conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were redeemed because of the precious blood of Christ. Ask yourself the question, am I living a life worthy of the blood that was spilled to redeem me from the bondage of my sin? Am I conducting myself in such a way to bring honor to the one who died for me? That's not a denial of grace. It's a right recognition of grace. God's grace is freely given. It is not cheaply received. It demands our all. So put all this in, 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 you know, in context here, in perspective. Peter's saying, look, life is hard. Life is hard. But God has prepared us for this. He's at work in it. He's refining us. This is actually good for us. But only if we trust him as obedient children who don't, who don't retreat back into passive, self-soothing futility. We're called to walk in obedience. We're called to be holy as he is holy. We're called to give our lives in love for God and for other people. You're called to get outside of yourself and live. Hope-filled lives action-oriented lives that bring glory to God and others. And when you do, you won't have a crisis of faith. Especially in the midst of your trials. You know what you'll do instead? You will grow in resiliency. You will grow in resiliency. You'll have peace. You'll experience joy. And the reason you can and you will is because in it, God is making you more like Christ who has redeemed you. Look again at verse 20 and 21. I close with these words. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And Lord, I pray that you'd help press that into our hearts and our minds this week. Lord, let us, let us be people who are resilient to endure the difficulties of the already not yet experience that we have in this life because we are recipients of grace. We know the gospel and we apply it not by running back to Egypt, but by running forth to live in the inheritance that we have already in Christ as holy and obedient people, givers of ourselves, outside of ourselves to love you and other people boldly, confidently, courageously, and joyfully. 
And we thank you, Lord, that we are not left with the futility of life apart from Christ. Oh, how we would crumble under our hardships if we didn't have hope. But you've given us hope. And you've given us purpose in our hope. Thank you. Help us to live in it. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.